You are the master of your reality. This is even more true in relation to the government. Democracy doesn't just happen. It takes participation. Governments need participation and feedback from their citizens. Join Rob Hutchinson for Dear Parliament, where you get to understand the issues and engage directly with government. Dear Parliament is every Wednesday at midday, only on 101.9 High FM. And good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Dear Parliament. It's the show which hopefully brings Parliament closer to you. Or perhaps it should be the show which brings you closer to Parliament. We'll have to see about that at the end of the show. I must say it's uh, it's actually great to be back after a short break. And my word, once again, so much has happened in the political space and in civil society. There is certainly never a dull moment in South African politics or, or civil society. Generally, my my morning, morning routine begins with a, a sort of droopy-eyed glance at Twitter to catch up with the uh, news or events, uh, uh, not unlike the, the early bird catching, catching a worm. And this morning's Twitter, Twitter feed was, and still is, uh, absolutely abuzz with videos and messages around a, an ordinary citizen and an ordinary member of civil society who had his say to the Minister of Police. Now, this took place in a town hall meeting where a local community was invited to engage with the minister on public safety concerns, which is a valid concern in that that part of the country. And it's a standard procedure which involves public participation where government officials call call for the public, they want to hear their views, and we're supposed to a good dialogue and conversation is supposed to come or, or come from that. Then arise from that should be good solutions. The concerned citizen, uh, a certain Mr. Ian Cameron, was clearly upset at the lack of action from our police service and he's, uh, he kind of vented his valid concerns directly to the minister. Well, needless to say, uh, Mr. Baker Chelly lost his composure completely and he retaliated in a rather questionable manner and eventually instructed the local police officers present at the at the venue to forcefully remove remove Mr. Cameron. Now, you know, we can we can look at this incident from from many, many angles. You know, one, Mr. Cameron was fully within his rights as a citizen to participate in the town hall meeting. He is also granted freedom of expression to voice his valid concerns directly to the minister and should be encouraged by the minister to do so. The minister's response, however, was, in, in my opinion, completely inappropriate. The valid and measurable concerns were raised by, by the public and through Mr. through Mr. Cameron, many of which have, have been raised before, and many of which Mr. Chelly is well aware, and none of which have been addressed at all. To lash out at a concerned citizen and dismiss his concerns and force, forcefully eject him from a valid public participation event is, in my opinion, highly troublesome and totally un undemocratic. You know, in a, in a functional and healthy democracy, a, a government should welcome constructive criticism, as criticism is where we have an opportunity to learn, to grow and to improve. And that is why we have a strong 
an active South African civil society sector, which is filled with many courageous individuals and organizations, all of which fight for our rights, uh, for our freedoms and for our, for our liberties. I have to congratulate the brave Mr. Cameron, who is a shining example of active citizenry. And luckily, he's, he's not the only one that has, has done this. He is certainly an example for the rest of civil society and, in my opinion, is the way we should, we should all be going and heading towards. An active civil society, especially in South Africa, is, is certainly the way to go. Change, I've said it many times before, change will come from the bottom up through active and engaged citizens who work together to hold government to task, to show accountability and to definitely push things forward through active active change. There are many, many, um, many others exist. Many active citizens and organizations do exist. Some are well known. Some operate behind the scenes through dedicated and focused organizations, but all have a common goal, and that is to improve the lives of all South Africans. One such organization who operates behind the scenes, but most certainly is making waves at all levels, is a group headed by a fantastic and rather interesting individual with a wealth of experience in many areas of of society. His organization is known as Freedom of Religion South Africa, or 4SA, and it strives to preserve the values of our constitution by using uh, by ensuring policy and government decisions do not encroach on the values of freedom of religion or belief. For he say does does this by representing all all religions, all denominations and all beliefs in a non-partisan way, which is no easy task at all as I'm sure we are all aware. And um, they've been they've done some amazing work in in various areas and most of which you might not have been aware of. So don't go anywhere because after the short break, I'll be chatting with Michael Swain, who's the executive director of 4SA, and he'll be revealing some rather interesting development policy, some of which concern you, and I guarantee you most of which we are not even aware of. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting today to Michael Swain. He's from an organization known as Freedom of Religion South Africa, or 4SA for short. Good day, Michael. I trust you well. Welcome to the show. Uh, good day, Rob. Great to be with you, and thanks so much for having me. Ooh, can hardly hear you, Michael. Can you speak up a bit there? Rob, we've got a, a, a very bad line. Maybe uh, somebody could try and call me back. I can hardly hear you quite muffled. Oh. All right. We seem to have technical difficulties there. We'll try to get hold of Michael through a cell phone call, and we'll be chatting to him about what his organization does, how it functions, and the difference that it makes in in your life and in other people's lives and in policy formation from a freedom of religion point of view. Now, there are certain things in, in society that we should be certainly aware of, and that is uh, being active, especially in in today's 
in today's society in South Africa. Many, many problems exist in, in our country, and we are no doubt well aware of them, especially during this COVID period. And the problems that that are facing us are through policy, through through problems that do exist. But believe me, the solutions do lie within civil society and organizations that assist the public to better their lives and perform and create better policy. Let's just see if Michael is back. Michael, are you there? Yes, I'm back. Sounds much better. Thank you, Rob. Oh, fantastic. Good to hear. You seem to be plagued with with uh, technical difficulties this morning, but who knows? Who knows what's going on? Hopefully, it'll be better from from here on. How are you doing? Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, doing fantastic, and thanks again so much for having me. Yeah, we have load shedding. Unfortunately, it's a systemic problem, but uh, I'm glad to be able to connect with you. It's fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely, I think that's a, that's the problem that's facing us all, and who knows what what's going to be done done about that. But I I'd like to talk about what you do. There's a couple of groups and organizations in, in South Africa that operate quite effectively be behind the scenes. Some some get noticed, some get the headline news, but a, a lot don't, and some seek the news and, and, and others don't. Your organization has done some incredible work, but we don't seem to hear much about what you do, but we certainly do see see the impact thereof. Tell us a bit more about about. Uh, maybe who are you, first of all, your background, and then a bit more about 4SA. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. So I uh, actually an immigrant from the UK. I came out here in 1983. I studied law in the UK. And uh, when I came to South Africa, I was involved in various things. I was involved in some communication businesses and software businesses. And then I was also involved for some 30 years in a position in full-time Christian ministry with an organization called uh, His People, now known as Every Nation, of which I'm a founder. And that, I think, uniquely positioned me for the role that I now play, which is as the executive director of an organization called Freedom of Religion uh, South Africa, known as 4SA. And you know, just to give you a little bit of a background on how that even began, because uh, it, it was almost started by accident, but I think very providentially started. Uh, what essentially happened was that I had met up and connected with uh, a man called uh, uh, Andrew Selly, uh, who is the founding pastor and leader of another church movement called Joshua Generation Churches uh, and 412. That's the broader movement. And one day he called me out of the blue and he said, I've just received uh, a letter from the South African Human Rights Commission. And they're telling me that I have to remove uh, portions of scripture, uh, that, that is the, obviously the, the, the Bible, from the teaching materials that I've prepared for my church and I've been teaching in my church. And they're also uh, ordering me to send my pastoral team for sensitization training. And I immediately said to Andrew, not knowing any more than what he just told me, I immediately said to Andrew, look, whatever you do, this is not an issue of, of what you can and cannot teach or should and should not teach. Uh, this is entirely a religious freedom issue, because if the Human Rights Commission, which is obviously an institution of the state, can tell you what scriptures, what holy texts you should or should not include in your teaching materials, and to try and push some form of interpretation on them, then that is clearly foursquare a religious freedom issue. And of course, 
freedom of religion is specifically protected and guaranteed by our constitution in section 15. And so it was on that basis that he then teamed up with a very uh, sharp uh, advocate who had recently uh, connected with him in his church called Nadine Bardenhorst, and they formed 4SA. And immediately it became apparent that this was not just an isolated instance, that there were multiple areas where potentially freedom of religion rights were being steadily eroded. And so uh, 4SA was essentially formed to protect and promote religious freedom rights, not just for the Christian faith, because it's a general right, it's a legal right, and we are a legal advocacy group. We protect religious freedom rights for all faiths, and uh, for whatever doctrinal interpretation that you may put on any particular aspect of your faith, obviously uh, you cannot do harm in that respect, uh, but beyond that, uh, we defend and promote all faiths, and we are, of course, also politically neutral. We uh, will engage with anyone who is uh, willing to uh, help to defend and promote and guarantee religious freedom rights. So that's a little bit of a background about what we do. We are a legal advocacy group, and obviously in that context, uh, we look at all sorts of uh, issues, perhaps uh, potentially court cases, uh, legislation, draft legislation, policies, regulations, uh, anything that has the potential to erode religious freedom, and unfortunately that is quite widespread, that's where we will engage. That sounds absolutely absolutely incredible. I love the fact that you aren't focused on one particular religion at all. You across the board, and even even so far as non-religious groups, you stretch into the area of, of beliefs. Tell us a bit more about how you manage to deal with that, the different belief systems and the different religions and so on? Well, you know, religious freedom is, is a very broad right in the sense and actually it's a basket of human rights. Uh, if, if you can that it is freedom of conscience, it's belief, it's thought, uh, religion, opinion. It obviously involves things like parental rights, the rights that you have as a parent to pass on your values to your children. And it also involves, you know, things like association, assembly, the opportunity to form organizations which reflect your specific faith values. So all, all these different rights come together under the broad uh, rubric of, of freedom of religion. Uh, but it, it, is, it is a very broad-based right. And, and of course, you know, to give you an, an illustration, perhaps, as to how it applies across all faiths, because what affects one faith will affect all faiths. That's just the nature and the way that the law works. And so if there's a negative precedent against one uh, particular faith for a particular, say, religious practice, then it's going to affect all faiths. And w one of uh, the, the best examples that I can think of is a, a case that took place in KwaZulu-Natal, called, uh, which was known as the Palais uh, case. And in that instance, uh, a, a young Hindu uh, lady who uh, had gone through a, a coming-of-age ceremony, almost kind of like a, a bat mitzvah. Um, as a consequence of that, she uh, wore a small uh, nose stud. Uh, and when she went back to the school, it was a public school, by the way, which is important, because uh, in the, if it was a private school, that there might have been a different outcome. But when she went back, they said, no, it was contrary to their jewellery policy, and she had to take it out. But she said, no, this is actually an expression of my faith. Uh, I should be allowed to actually wear it. And of course, 
the Constitutional Court fortunately agreed with that position, and they said that the school should reasonably accommodate uh, her in that instance, and therefore she was allowed to wear it, even though uh, potentially it might have gone against the jewelry policy, but it wasn't considered to be uh, an overriding factor. It was her, her religious freedom rights actually trumped the right of the school to uh, put in some form of a jewelry policy. But uh, imagine if it had been decided the other way. That would mean that, for example, if as a Christian you wore uh, a crucifix, for instance, which many people do, or if, if you had, which some young uh, women do, they wear a promise ring as a kind of a pledge to um, r- remain sexually pure until marriage, uh, then you could be potentially forced to take off all those things. And so, yes, what affects one affects all, and that's why we have to be very careful to promote and to protect uh, all faith equally, uh, so that we can all enjoy the maximum opportunity to believe as we want to believe. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't actually uh, agree more. It should be an absolute. You should be able to be to believe in anything that that you want to, and there shouldn't be any prejudice from from government or interference from from government in in that matter at all. What happens when when government? does overstep the mark. Do you have any examples other than the one that you just mentioned now, where government has actually introduced legislation, um, maybe even in not so obvious form, that does affect freedom of religion? Well, one aspect which, again, as I said to you, parents, part of what your religious freedom rights entail uh, are the rights of, of, of you as a parent to pass on your faith and your values to your children. And that uh, sometimes can conflict or clash when it comes to the education system. And there was a very clear example of that in 2019. Now, you might recall that what happened uh, was that government had engaged with the um, UNESCO and the International Technical Guidelines for Sexuality Education uh, content, and they had used that uh, to develop content which they then wanted to put into the public school system to teach on sex and sexuality, known as comprehensive sexuality education. Now, it's important to see where rights begin and rights end, because obviously government uh, have the right uh, to set the outcomes that they want to achieve through the education system, and that's what the CAPS curriculum does. But they do not have the right to uh, prescribe particularly content that is value-laden. And it is impossible to teach on sex and sexuality without some kind of a value basis. And when we looked, which we did, at the content that was being essentially prescribed to schools at that point, uh, it was clearly very value-laden because the International Technical Guidelines for Sexuality Education were very heavily contributed to, by among other organizations, International Planned Parenthood, which is obviously probably the the largest abortion uh, providing agency in the world. And so what had happened was that there had been no consultation with parents. And of course, uh, not even teachers, but parents particularly. Uh, did not have or had not been given the opportunity to view this material uh, and to uh, give input into this material to see if they were happy with it. Very clearly, again, the uh, basic education, uh, Department of Basic Education, their white paper, their policy, acknowledges and recognizes that parents have, an, in their own words, an inalienable right 
uh, to pass on their values and, and, and to even look at the form of education that their children will be taking. So that had not happened. And initially, there was quite a lot of pushback from the Department of Basic Education. Uh, but it became clear uh, fairly quickly that their position was untenable. But again, it's just interesting to sometimes look at the agenda behind the agenda. And um, what had happened also was that an organization, an international organization called USAID, had contributed uh, some 400 million rand uh, for the rollout of that specific curriculum. And so obviously there was some form of vested interest in doing that, or so it seemed. And so again, what we did simply was we basically said, well, this is what the law says that you need to do. You need to consult parents. You need to respect parents. The school governing bodies uh, have also rights uh, in law to select the content of what is chosen, and that is what needs to be respected. And uh, fortunately, again, and I think perhaps as a consequence of the pushback, there was consultation uh, and there were amendments made and adjustments made to the, to, to the content. And also, uh, they recognized that school governing bodies did indeed have the right to select the content to teach that particular module of the CAPS curriculum. And so th that was an example of how we uh, engaged and perhaps also informed and, and, and made sure that people were aware, which is very much something which I know DRSA does, uh, to, of what was actually happening so that these things just simply don't slip through unnoticed. Absolutely. That, that is exactly what, what, what we do. And we enjoy collaborating with, with groups such as, as yourselves, as there's no doubt about that. And also obviously towards favorable income, uh, favorable outcomes, <laughs> perhaps not so much yes. income, but definitely outcomes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of conflict in, in the religious sector and, you know, that for, for, for obvious reasons now, and some or certain groups will will approach government. I mean, that is how policy amendments do do come about through public interaction with with government. Uh, what happens in in an instance where you have a conflict with within within the religious sector from uh, opposing groups? Say one group goes to government and proposes something that might be discriminatory to to another religious sect. Uh, how would you go about dealing dealing with that? Is there a methodology? Well, our methodology is always to look at what the law says, uh, because obviously sometimes you know people and different religious groupings can come into conflict, uh, and that obviously has to be resolved. And sometimes there are institutions that are actually set up specifically to help with that. For example, the uh, Cultural, Religious, and Linguistic Rights Commission, they're known as the CRL. Uh, they are an institution of state set up by Chapter 9 uh, of the Constitution, and they do and often have acted as mediators in that type of dispute. But to, to give you a, a specific example, uh, we, for SA, were involved as an amicus curiae or a friend of the court in a case that took place recently, actually, this year, uh, was resolved in the Chatsworth uh, Magistrates Court, which was actually a, a hate speech bill, uh, a case brought, brought under Papuda, uh, which the organization who brought the case, in fact, there were two, also tried to open up uh, the, the criminal action of crime and injuria, which is obviously something which is where your dignity is so you know, grievously offended that it actually amounts to a criminal act. And they did so, uh, and they took this, the, 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 these uh, cases out. Uh, they litigated against a young uh, evangelist who essentially, uh, obviously, within the community and in a public meeting, 
had simply shared his faith, his testimony, if you like, of, of a healing that took place, but it was in the Christian faith context. And they believed that this and some of the remarks that he made were so egregious to their faith that they actually wanted to sue him and they wanted to, to uh, the court to order that he would pay damages uh, to the tune of a million rand. Uh, now, again, nothing that he did or said amounted to the definition of hate speech in our constitution or as you know later exp- expanded and, and reinforced and confirmed by the constitutional court in the Quilani case. It was in no way, shape, or form any form of advocacy to hatred, and it was no way, shape, or form uh, uh, an incitement to do harm. But nevertheless, and that's where I say you you have to go to the law with these things, and we came in as a friend of the court, uh, not on one side or the other, but to really just make sure that particularly in that uh, case, because you don't want a bad precedent to be set, and you also typically do not want government or sorry, not government, but but but, but the court, the judiciary, uh, to uh, intervene in matters of faith because that's not where their purview uh, typically should ever lie. And we were successful in 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 brokering a settlement, if you like. Uh, the case wasn't actually decided; uh, it was then settled out of court. It never became uh, a, a matter of uh, a, a judgment, so to speak. And so, yeah, that, that, that's what we do. We we try to also make sure that adverse legal precedents are not set, because obviously a legal precedent that goes against uh, faith applies to all faith, and. Uh, the limitations that can come from that, or even the unforeseen consequences that can come from that, obviously are you know can can be very serious. Absolutely, and there's there's no doubt that the state and and uh, religion do need to be separated, but often tend tend to get. Uh, the, the line tends to get blurred between between the two. We're going to take a quick quick break, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. And we chat today to Michael Swain, who's the executive director of Freedom of Religion South Africa, a group which advocates for freedom of religion rights in South Africa, some of which are sometimes trampled upon by by our government and by uh, other forces forces at play welcome back michael and yeah you know, it is it's quite a tense conversation if if we had to really dive dive into the the intricacies of it but uh, i often get the feeling that government is is set out through the many amendments and many bills and pieces of legislation to create a, a new form of, of religion by combining everything in, into one. Have, have you experienced uh, in, anything such as that? Well, it, it's actually interesting that you should mention that, because you, you mentioned just before the break about the importance of keeping the state out of affairs of faith. And there was a very concerted attempt, uh, which actually began, again, I think it was in, in 2015, uh, when a report was issued by, interestingly enough, the CRL Rights Commission uh, on basically the, the, the sort of spiritual abuse or highlighting spiritual abuses uh, that it 
said was taking place within uh, the faith community. And the solution that it proposed was that it would be the regulator of uh, faith in South Africa. In other words, uh, they wanted to appoint a peer review mechanism, which would have meant that each faith would have had effectively uh, a, a body that it would ultimately, the CRO would ultimately have appointed, which would then adjudicate on what was uh, acceptable doctrine. Now, on the one hand, you might think, well, that's a great idea because, you know, you don't want if, if you like, any form of heretical teachings or bizarre teachings. But that actually isn't freedom of religion. Now, the Constitutional Court has decided and declared that even if a belief is bizarre, irrational, or illogical, it is nevertheless protected by the constitutional guarantee of religious freedom. I mean, you can believe, believe in the man in the moon if you want to, obviously, as long as you don't harm anybody else in the process. And this problem was highlighted because effectively it would have come down to being licensed to be a religious practitioner. In other words, a body or board ultimately set up by an answerable to government and presumably uh, with the power of the state behind it would have effectively uh, been in a position to grant or not you a license as a religious practitioner. And clearly, when you get into that situation, effectively, you have state control of religion. And interestingly enough, it happened during the, the Zuma years. And I think one of the uh, challenges, perhaps, and, and, and maybe the great benefits of faith communities is that they are indeed an independent voice. They are not a voice that is uh, or ever should be controlled by government. Sometimes you need to have that, let's call it a moral voice, uh, to speak to power and to speak up for those who perhaps cannot speak for themselves. And so we, we contested that very strongly. We ended up uh, with, I think, five days in total on two uh, different occasions in Parliament. And uh, eventually the uh, COGTA uh, Parliamentary Portfolio Committee, to whom the CRL Rights Commission reports, uh, decided that they would not proceed with the recommendations for uh, any form of state regulation of religion, which was a big win, uh, because, as I say, uh, you just have to look overseas at nations like China, for example, uh, to see what can actually happen when the state does gain control over the religious sector. So the, the, that, that is an instance where you have really the, the, the very important need to ensure that the state does not intervene uh, in matters of faith. Mm, so perhaps it's not so much freedom of in individual religion, because that's really guaranteed to us in the Constitution, but freedom from state interference in my belief system. I wonder if that, that could be the actual case there. Is it, sorry, I think we blanked out there. Is, it, is that the actual uh, motive of, of the organization is to fight for, uh, to make, keep, state interference at, at out of out of religious practices yeah absolutely uh, you know, or the, the autonomy of religious organizations in other words your right to uh, form an organization to reflect your belief system so that people who are like-minded can assemble and join together and and participate in that faith without fear of interference or sanction, that is absolutely foundational to religious freedom rights. And so whenever there's the, the, the potential, for example, for the states to intervene or interfere, uh, and as mentioned right at the beginning with the, the situation with uh, the Josh Jen case, 
where they actually, an institution of state actually wanted to them to, to remove certain portions of, uh, of Scripture from their teachings. That is a situation which obviously must be strongly resisted because once you lose the autonomy of your uh, faith to actually practice it, then what are you effectively left with? You are simply then at the mercy of, of government. And, 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 and government, uh, you know, can sometimes interfere, perhaps uh, not intentionally, but even, for instance, in some of the ways that different views, even constitutional views, can potentially uh, conflict with maybe what a faith specifically believes. Um, but again, within the organization, and given the fact that people who are in that organization are there voluntarily, there should not be government intervention in that instance, even if uh, the practices perhaps or the expressions of that faith do seem to conflict with uh, a, a constitutional value. Yeah, and, I, and I've no doubt that governments uh, will try and interfere more and more in, in religious practices and 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 from across all all denominations, there's been a flurry of uh, new amendment bills and uh, proposals by government, which seem to encroach on on beliefs and and religious uh, gatherings and uh, community spirits. After all, we know most religions, uh, especially in the Jewish faith, is community community based building strong communities, strong links within communities and assisting assisting each other, which seems to be the complete opposite to what government wants to do. They seem to want to create a dependency model where uh, every every citizen is dependent on government and not, not self, self-sufficient. Um, have you come across any such incidences there where in in any sort of legislation which would allude to that, that in government? Well, obviously one of the things that we, we, we must recognize is that the faith communities actually play a tremendous role in uh, in the general benefit of society. If you think of uh, the, the types of services, and I'm not just talking about the sort of you know, practical hands-on sort of rescue efforts, for example, where there's flooding and so on, but you know, just even in, in the sort of cohesion, the social cohesion, faith and shared faith is very much a, 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 a core component of that. But, you know, I'm, I'm also just thinking when we were speaking, something that we worked together with, with, with DRSA on were, was, was the hate speech bill, which is still uh, open. It's, it's, it's still before Parliament. And that was a very concerning piece of uh, potential legislation because in its original format, the definition of hate speech was so wide that literally just about anything that you might have said – uh, from a conservative value position, which of course is where most faith, uh, faith actually, uh, would, would land, would potentially have been hate speech and could have opened you up to prosecution. Now we, again, sounded the alarm on that some sort of, I think it was 2016, 2017, and there was a big pushback against it. And the consequence of that was that the Deputy Minister of Justice uh, John Jeffrey, uh, whose department obviously had drafted that piece of legislation, then included a specific uh, clause, a specific uh, protection for bona fide religious uh, speech. But it was also too narrowly drafted. And again, 
we always look at law and we look at the unforeseen potential consequences because what can unfortunately happen is that there are activists who, for whatever reason, uh, do not like or want to have people even allowed to sometimes express conservative values or faith-based values. And so when we looked at the provisions that had been put in, the clause that had been put in, uh, and the deputy minister himself said that he felt that it would protect people who perhaps made statements, a rabbi uh, in, 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 in the synagogue or uh, in, in a mosque or you know, from a, behind a pulpit or something, that speech would be protected. But if you, as the person who had heard that, then went out and repeated it or posted it on social media or otherwise communicated it, you literally would have and, and could have fallen foul of hate speech because it wasn't sufficiently protected, even as far as the deputy minister was concerned. He made that statement to parliament. So you, know, you have to think about that. I mean, that carries uh, in, in this legislation draft uh, a three-year jail sentence, potentially, for a first offence and a five-year for a second or subsequent offence. Should you even countenance jailing somebody for expressing uh, a faith position, even if you might find it offensive or you, you might find it deeply offensive. But that is not the, the case. It, it, it should be, therefore, widely protected. And so we engage with that with uh, DRSA, you might recall, and we're pushing, first of all, to say that there is no actual need for uh, a specific law to uh, criminalize hate speech because we already have, for example, as I mentioned, criminaluria, which is a common law offense, which, uh, for example, Penny Sparrow and Vicky Momberg were convicted under for the remarks that they made, the racial slurs that they made. But this particular um, law, potentially, if it were to be passed into law, would criminalize legitimate expression of faith, potentially. And that's why it's so important that we push back. I think we had uh, close to 100,000 signatures or submissions, uh, specifically individual submissions were sent to the department on that. So, again, probably, Rob, just to say that does emphasize the critical importance of public engagement and making sure that people are informed of the issues, the situations, and given the tools with which they can actually engage in our constitutional democratic process. Absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree with you more, Michael. It's been an absolute, uh, fascinating uh, chat with you. Um, I I certainly would not want your job. It's, it sounds highly complicated and a, a lot to, lot to take in. But I'm certainly grateful for for your organisation and for for the work that that it does. And uh, how can we briefly before we before we wrap up? How can people get get hold of you? Well, the best way is to go to our website, which is forsa.org.za. Uh, and uh, then we also, also have a Facebook page called Freedom of Religion SA. And there are all sorts of issues. I mean, you know, we, we've really just skimmed the surface. And on our website, uh, you can see videos. You can uh, in, also engage uh, with some of the current issues that we are concerned about. You can click through. You can read articles. You can watch videos. Uh, it is so important, I think, that we are an informed citizenry. It is so important that people understand uh, the rights that they have to engage in these processes. And the only way that you can really do that 
constructively if you're informed first. So yeah, please do go to our website. You can sign up for our newsletter there. And also just to say, Rob, we are a completely voluntary organization. We are entirely dependent upon donations to actually fund the work that we do. And I dare say that we do very vital work to protect and promote all faith. So if people would consider supporting us financially, that would also be very, very important. And it's very easy to do that. You can also just click on a button on our website. Fantastic. And once again, thank you so much. And that, dear listeners, unfortunately brings us to the end of the Dear Parliament show today. And if you missed it, be sure to catch up with the podcast, which is available on our website and on Spotify website. Again, www.highfm.com. And thank you for listening. Until next time, remember to stay democratically engaged, active and responsible.